0: We hear different sort of descriptions or or different words used to talk about how this practice and this path unfold. In different times, different ones of these might resonate or, or seem to uh, line up with our experience, and sometimes it's this sense of. of um, you know, awakening to our true nature, or something. Sometimes people use the the expression um, discovering our, our inner nature, our Buddha nature, something like that. Or is sometimes spoken about as um, different sort of stages of insight. This practice is called insight meditation, and and uh, different levels of enlightenment, or. Um, Breasting in natural great perfection of the mind and heart, and we hear, and some of these things may make a certain sense or have a resonance or an inspiring quality to them. There's a way um, that that the, the the unfolding of our understanding is spoken about that <clears throat> maybe isn't so commonly seen or thought of. It's it's more common. At least in some of the countries that I've spent time in, uh, that are that where Buddhism is Buddhism is kind of the national religion in places like Burma and Thailand. Um, you hear teachers and people referring to um, the pathas in terms of what are called the paramis. The word paramis parami uh, is Pali, paramita in Sanskrit. And and in this tradition it's said that there are these ten qualities, beautiful, noble qualities of mind and heart. Uh, there's sort of a, a mythical story um, of the Buddha developing these over countless lifetimes. And there's a collection of stories called the Jataka Tales that are, um, you know, some people believe them, hold them as, as real, true descriptions, and, and you can see them that way. They can also be seen, I think, uh, one useful way we might hold them as his kind of teaching stories. And in, in these stories, I sometimes use them in teaching. Um, they're, they're lives of the Buddha-to-be, the Bodhisattva, um, and often taking birth as an animal, or different uh, circumstances, and, and developing one or another, or more than one sometimes of these beautiful qualities. So I'll list them for you. Um, the ten that we, we speak about in the Theravada lineage tradition. So the first one is, and I'll say the Pali words, dana or generosity, giving, sila, uh, ethical conduct, virtue. So that's uh, attention to how we live in the world and how we, how we comport ourselves. Nekama is renunciation. Panya, wisdom or insight. Virya, energy, effort kanti, patience, satcha, truthfulness, aditana determination or resolve, metta, loving kindness, and upeka equanimity. And so thinking in this way, then the, the culmination of the path, these qualities then brought to perfection, to a kind of um, a fullness, completion. And you could see this in terms of um, understanding that when the mind and heart are no longer under the sway, under the power of the energies of the greed, hatred, and delusion that I spoke about in my last talk, that that these qualities then are there. They there are kind of a response, the natural response of the mind or the heart when they're free of these uh, reactive patterns, habits of the mind. And I think this way of of looking at the path and thinking of the practice is useful and powerful always and for a a few reasons. One of the main ones is that it tends to um, really expand the breadth of what we think of as our practice. And we tend to think of practice mostly of sitting quietly like we do when we come into the hall and sit in meditation. That's what, you know, comes into our mind. And then sometimes we might expand that a little bit to include, you know, maybe some walking meditation if we're may forced to do it on a retreat. <laughs> How much do we do that outside of retreat? Ever? Maybe once in a while. Or bringing attention to to our conduct and how we're living in the world, we, we tend to think of that as, as a good thing, but not necessarily as our practice. We I mean, might not hold it. We kind of narrow it down to this, this one thing of sitting in quiet meditation, sitting silently. And, and so it expands the breadth of that because these things are, are things that we're bringing there. They're happening all the time no matter what we're doing. Life gives us all kinds of opportunities to develop some of these qualities of of generosity of certainly our conduct and uh, and uh, patience or energy or resolve all of these things and I think that 's also really helpful because it cuts through it can cut help us cut through this tendency we have to be. Constantly evaluating and assessing our practice, and maybe especially this happens on retreat, looking to see if it's working, if we're getting it. You know, we're looking around, am I getting it? And we're pretty sure everyone else is getting it. And what if they get it all? There's none of it left for me to get. And looking for progress, and you know we, we judge our experience, that's wrong, then we judge ourselves because we had it, so it must be our fault. And we can, we'll overlook these qualities, you know. And what if, you know, if you think of this model of the Buddha developing these over a lifetime, you know, what if this whole lifetime is just about perseverance? Are you, is that okay? Is that all right? And if this whole lifetime is about uh, trying to, is developing uh, and, and understanding renunciation or determination, you know, are we, are we signing up for that one? Or this whole retreat? Is that okay? This whole retreat is just about starting over again, being willing to do that, or starting to explore and really understand what is it, what does kindness really mean? What What if we just decide i'm gonna I'm going just explore kindness for the next ten or fifteen lifetimes <laughs> That seems really worthwhile to me that'll de- open the door to everything. none of these is limited. any one of them taken to fullness will open and and they'll all show up in there you know, so we come to the retreat and we sit down to meditate and we're hoping find a little calm or ease, some peaceful moments. That's what this is supposed to be about. And you know, we find this just restless, uncomfortable body and this wild, weird mind, and neither of them will behave the way we think they should, the way we want them to, and everything we've ever repressed or denied or done our best to forget shows up. Or even if it's not that stuff that's maybe difficult to be with, then it's just all the boring, repetitious, or embarrassing stuff that shows up. You know, every song, stupid TV commercial, (coughs) it all shows up sooner or later. I mean, if I had this special contraption that you could put on that would allow you to play the contents of your mind over the PA system. Who in here is going to volunteer to do that? <laughs> you know, we're not, we're not likely to, oh yeah, listen to what's going on in my mind. <laughs> you know, it's like, the very thought just makes you cringe. <laughs> if I played mine, you'd never have anything to do with me ever again. Probably. <laughs> I mean, once in a while it wouldn't be too bad. <laughs> You know, so if we're if we're trying to avoid some (laughs) something, or not say we're not going to look at something, some something that we find really uh, not beautiful in our own mind and heart, or you know, if our strategy is to avoid looking at that, it's we're in for we're really going to be in for it. Sooner or later, we're going to have to develop a a real relationship with every aspect of who we are. There's a story once, the famous uh, Tibetan teacher that uh, one of us maybe, or one of my colleagues mentioned, uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, he was a Pema Chodron's teacher. Very highly uh, regarded and very controversial teacher, but he um, was scheduled to give a talk, I think this was in Berkeley, California, and um, he he was famous, at least at certain points, for being late. And um, so people had been waiting there for a long time, and he finally he shows up. And uh, the first thing he said was, if you want your money back, it's all right. Just go to the door and ask for it, for it back. It's quite fine. In fact, if you haven't started the spiritual path, it's best not to begin. It's difficult. It's terrible. And you have to face all kinds of things that you won't like. As far as the ego is concerned, it is just one insult after another. <laughs> and you know, sometimes it feels like that. You know, and, and we have to, you know, this, this practice demands this kind of radical honesty and, and determination to really develop an intimacy with the entirety of our being and if we skip over, or repress, or try to avoid something, it's never going to come to fulfillment. It won't develop. We won't ever find freedom or peace in a real way. And so we need the support of these heart qualities, and we need to look at our practice in terms of these paramis. It's really helpful, really skillful. And we need courage, and resolve, and patience, kindness, and we, to help us stay at it through, through all the ups and downs. You know, this, some of us probably, if we've been at this for any length of time, we start to get the sense that this is kind of a big project here. You know, to really understand what it is to be human, to really understand the mind and heart, and, and to unlearn these, these habitual responses that, boy, they stick around. And we've been practicing them for a long time, and the, what's going to make, make the difference is, is sticking with it. You know, because if we're fighting against our own mind and heart, we're going to create a situation where we're never okay and we're never good enough. You know, and, and difficult things that come up in practice, and it's not all difficult, but sometimes it's really hard. And, and these uh, times can. Can really help with this developing this kind of perseverance and determination. They can build strength of heart if we're careful in how we hold them. You know, and we see that fighting against uh, our own mind and heart just doesn't ever work in the long run. It's it's cruelty to ourselves. And but if we can cultivate a certain kind of care and respect for our struggles, see them as. Uh, opportunities that help us develop some of these qualities of the parames, of steadfastness and tolerance and gentle perseverance. I heard this story once. There was a a very respected teacher who's a a monk in the Theravada tradition. And he was telling a story of, he was on a retreat at at the place where he lives, and and there was a shrine that was in in a field with a a circular pathway around it, and, and he was doing his walking meditation as a circumambulation of this shrine. And every time on one side there was a, 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 an opening with a Buddha statue in there. And every time he came around, he would, he would stand there and he would bow and offer his mind state to the altar and bow to it with respect. He says, let, let me, let me um, be with my own mind and heart. and and show respect for this part of me, that's maybe really difficult. So patience is one of these paramis, kanti, patience. That's maybe one of the most important ones. We're so impatient. When this place was first started in the very early years, maybe the first few months Somehow a letter showed up here and it was addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. <laughs> <laughs> that's what, well, that's what we, we want instant meditation. <laughs> you know? We might start to get the sense it's that maybe this five day retreat, ten, or week long, it's a week long, usually it's been five days in the past. We might take a little longer. For the fullness of this practice to come through. And hmm, we mostly, you know, life gives us so many opportunities, a retreat in our life to develop patience. And usually they're opportunities we would rather not be getting. I was just, just, just um, last week, what's the date here, the 18th? April 12th was would have been my mother's 100th birthday if she had survived that long but she died in eight a little over 8 years ago almost 92 my dad passed away about 10 weeks after my mom and they had been together for more than 70 years can you imagine there's some patience was getting developed there <laughs> especially having known my father i mean he was <laughs> He was a great guy, very generous, but my mother must have had such patience. <laughs> One of my friends came to visit when they were in their late eighties, and they were sitting on the couch a cup yeah, these two friends came to to visit. they were on their way somewhere else, and they, I was happened to be at my parents' home, and there was an extra room and they they Flew into, the, into Phoenix, Arizona, where I grew up, where my parents lived, and they were sitting on the couch holding hands at age 88 or 89, and my, um, my friend, one of them, was just so moved seeing them uh, this way, and, and there's a lot of genuine infection there, but uh, you just know there was a lot of, it wasn't all, it was to stay with anybody for that long, amazing patience required. And as they grew older, my sister, my older oldest sibling, my sister and I were very much involved in uh, trying to look after my folks. And it got pretty hard there towards the end. And my mother had some real decline in her mental abilities, some uh, senile dementia. And my father was very hard on him. And he had a lot of reactivity. And it was really difficult. And I, you know, I'd spend time with them and, you know, my poor mother, she had no short-term memory. You know, we have the same conversations over and over. I know many of you know this well from your own experience and, you know, different circumstances. And, you know, if you want a reality check on your spiritual development, go spend time with your family. <laughs> you know, it's pretty easy to be kind of wise in meditation centers hanging around in places like this. But my parents, they were great people, but they knew, without meaning to, sure knew how to push my buttons. And so, you know, here I am, supposedly this somewhat wise being, you know, meditation teacher, and I show up and I'm behaving like a morose teenager or an angry child. You know, this is humbling. (laughs) You know, and having to apologize for saying something you know, that I really wish hadn't come out of my mouth. And uh, so, you know, a lot of, I got to really, I learned so much and I developed such a different relationship to impatience at that time. You know, I really, I didn't beat myself up around. It's like, okay, you know, I blew it. Let me try to pick up the, clean up that mess and start again. And, you know, if we really can, um, shift our relationship to impatience and, and explore it and get to know it and see Oh, it feels like this in the body, it feels like this in the heart. And there are these stories and what happens when we identify with it and get, and then beat ourselves up for it. So finding a wise and uh, skillful relationship to impatience, so that's how we learn patience. This, to me, thinking in this way points to this quality, and I mentioned it a little earlier, that is is a characteristic of patience, but it also supports its development, and that's this quality of, of what I like to call gentle forbearance. This, this gentle um, uh, bearing with what's difficult. That image of the, the monk teacher Placing his mind state, offering it to the altar, and bowing to it has that quality to me. You know, even when impatience really triggered strongly, sometimes this quality of gentle forbearance can open up some space in our mind and and in a, in the heart, and and um, maybe we can then touch into this commitment to not cause harm intentionally to the degree that that's possible and it may give us enough um, space that we can show some restraint and consider the situation, maybe bring some understanding to bear and not just act that impatience out. I think I mentioned this before. One of us may have, certainly. I know many of you have heard this, but it is said that the Buddha's inspiration, the reason he was moved to teach, you know, it said... in the story it said that after his awakening under the bodhi tree that um, as he thought and he was cons- you know looking at his understanding and thinking and he he at one point he said i he didn't he said i'm not going to try to teach this it's too subtle and too profound and no one's going to get it and it's just going to upset me it will lead to vexation for me and it said that a, a Brahma god, a deity, uh, came down to him and said, please teach for the benefit of those who might see, because there are those with with only a little dust in their eyes. There are those who might understand this. And so that the Buddha uh, had this, this broad vision, and he surveyed, and he saw, yes, there are those who might understand, and... Out of the compassion of seeing beings who were trying to find happiness and doing the very thing that caused them, caused themselves, caused others to suffer, that they were they were looking for happiness but very confused, and it was this mahakaruna, great compassion, is said to be why he decided yes, I'll do it. And he and he told his followers, he said, when they had realized some level of understanding, he said, go forth for the benefit of others. Go forth and teach for the good of beings. This beautiful movement of heart, this Mahakaruna. And, and when we, we start to see this, what's happening there, we see the truth, the, the, very directly the truth of this for ourselves. That That's what's going on in the world. All the stuff we get up to. And some of it's pretty <coughs> out there. It's it rests on this beautiful wholesome movement of heart of trying to find ways to be happy at peace, find safety and ease. However you might talk about it, there's just a lot of confusion about what might lead that and to that, and not very much good information out there. You know, what's the best thing we're offered in in this society at this time? Maybe like go shopping. Try that that's kind of you know go shopping is I like shop you know shopping's okay, There's nothing wrong with shopping, but as a strategy for finding how lasting happiness and peace it's not going to go very far It'll last a little while so we start to see the the size of we see the The depth and breadth of, the other day I was talking about the breadth and depth of the insecurity and instability that underlies the human condition. And how universal that is. The size of that cloth in terms of our relationship to the impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable nature of things. How we're trying to um, negotiate that. And, the, and how the greed and resistance and aversion and, con- and confusion and zoning out are these misguided attempts to deal with this. That's all those things are. They're trying to help us find happiness. They just don't really work. And so we see that dukkha on this level is not personal. It impacts all beings. And it's, it's an ailment that is woven into, embedded into, and in, threaded through are the fabric of our existence. You know, and there's so much avoidable suffering in the world. We were talking about this in one of the groups, you know, just seeing... Someone was saying, everybody should be doing this practice. Everybody should be trying to understand why they're why, what is suffering, what leads to that. What's the cause of it? How do we release that? It would change everything. But, you know, this, the momentum, you know, that's why the Buddha said this is swimming against the stream. And it's not, there's no blame in that. There, there, but there can be compassion and understanding. And yes, action to be taken also. But this gentle forbearance, this quality, That sees, that's what's going on. Beings confused about what might bring happiness, but underneath that, trying to find happiness. It can support this quality of patience that, that then we can look at what's hard for us. This difficult mind state. Let me be with this for the benefit of all beings. How about that? That's a great motivation. Let me be with this difficult mind state for the benefit of all beings, because the more, let me be with this unpleasant feeling. I mean, people are starting wars to avoid feeling an unpleasant feeling. This happens, this is what you, you distill it down, that's what's going on. I don't wanna feel weak and powerless, so I think I'll start a war. I mean, they're not thinking of it in that way, but that's what's going on. You know, so if we're willing to, like, boy, if the only thing we got out of a lifetime of meditation was an ability to be with an unpleasant feeling, Dukkha Vedana, that would be a gift to ourselves and every being in a huge way. So let me bear this gently, skillfully, not gritting my teeth and toughing it out, but finding a skillful way as a gift to all beings. What a beautiful way of holding the practice. So it's never just about us. You know, I can feel that way sitting on the cushion here, but it's always bigger than, than just our own little struggles or large struggles. Our our old our, our deep habits of mind, these things that show up and we get caught over and over, these deep mental habits give us this chance to develop patience, you know. These and sometimes these things that come up and we see them and we feel like we've seen them from every angle and they still keep showing up. This deep feeling of not being good enough or unlovability or whatever, our own version. One of our uh, colleagues and friends calls them karmic knots. And we feel like we've just seen it from every side. And then it shows up and we're like, it's like bait on a hook. And we're going to rise up and bite that bait. It's an image that Joseph Goldstein uses. You know, and we, we see this thing come along. You're no good. And it's got this and we hear, I'm going to bite it. I'm going to do it. Like <laughs> <there's> a fish <laughs> rising up. You know, it's like can't can't we can't believe we see ourselves doing it again. You know, so we need so much patience and kindness. And I was watching this in my own mind on a retreat not too not too long ago, a few years ago, and you know, getting caught by this old story. And what I noticed was there was this Change in my relationship there, where I I heard myself say to myself, you know, Greg, this probably is not the last time you're going to feel this way, mm-hmm. and it wasn't a defeated, giving up, it but it was a movement of kindness. Like, okay, this one's this is a deep old one, this one's sticking around, and and there was there was some real freedom in 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 seeing it that way. Okay, let me I'll I'll be with it. <laughs> I can be with this. And so we can see these things, these old habits or things that come that are feel like obstacles. We can change them to objects of our practice and then they become the very vehicles. Some, some teacher, I, I don't know who said this, but I, I heard it recently and I thought it was such a great thing, a little pithy statement. <laughs> Maybe some of you know where this came from, but uh, this, the saying is, if it's in the way, it is the way. If it's in the way, that's the vehicle for our understanding and liberation. Something seems to be in your way, that is the way. And so, when we relate to things, we can find a different way of relating to what's difficult, developing patience and... and um, and at the same time, we, we learn a lot about forgiveness. It's another vital quality, I think. Something that just really can be critical for us to address at, at some time or other, at least for some of us. And it, the Buddha taught that it was the, the, the energy, the force of clinging, grasping, identification in the mind and heart that was the source of so much suffering stress and struggle for us. And one way this shows up has to do with our relationship to past hurts, memories of uh, past hurts and, and uh, harms. And on, on retreat sometimes, I don't know, people report this a lot. I don't know, maybe some of you have experienced this on this retreat or other ones, but sometimes we, we kind of get this flood of memories over our life. We have this it's almost like a life review and sometimes things will show up that we just we didn't even remember having ha- that ha- having them happen. You know, and, and sometimes um they're difficult memories. I remember in my very early practice, this I think this came very strongly on um the first time I sat a long retreat here in the for the three month retreat and I had just been meditating for a few months and um I was flooded by these memories at one point and a lot of them were about um, one 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 time, one part of it were these memories of ways that I had been extremely cruel to insects as a little boy and uh, horrible things that I had done and there was so much pain and remorse in my mind um, regarding this. and I was also very kind to them at times but was such an interesting mix of that I wasn't afraid of them, and I was the one who was called on to rescue bugs and and uh, take them out of the classroom or something, but I also did awful things and i it's interesting as an adult, I am the favorite food of most biting insects, and <laughs> you know I don't want to put a direct karmic link there, <laughs> but I was traveling i mean you know i've been bitten by ladybugs <laughs> Not, most people don't report that. And I was, if people are with me, they're generally fine, you know. And I was traveling with my partner in India, and we got a room in a not very good place once, and I was just tormented by bedbugs all night long, and she just slept like a rock. She didn't see one or, and I was just covered with bites. So I figure, okay there's nothing they can do that's going to come close to what I did. So, yeah, yeah. I'll bear this, you know. But sometimes, you know, these, these things, That sometimes they're memory of things that we did. Sometimes they're memories of things that happened to us. And it's so really interesting because sometimes the memories, you know, we might remember something that, was long ago, and and it can bring the feeling back, and it's like it just happened. It's so present and hot in the mind. I was once, um, you know, we we Bruni yesterday uh, introduced La kindness for the the uh, an easy difficult person, and I was doing an intensive meta retreat once, and I was I had been doing it staying with just one category, but it's uh, at some point I was moving through the categories and I came to the difficult uh, relationship and uh, I thought of someone who I hadn't seen in years, never saw, was not in my life and I remembered a situation and um, oh, it was so painful. it was like it had just happened that morning. That's how it felt. It was so you know and there was not in my life in any way. <laughs> so hot, right there. And forgiveness, this quality, it's, it's really, it points to the possibility that we can release the suffering that comes from anger and resentment or guilt. You know, these memories and the way we relate to them that can keep us bound into, in cycles of suffering. Sometimes they, they stay around for a long time and and so it's something that you know it's not necessarily there for all of us but for many of us at different times this is something to really um, can really be powerful to uh, to investigate and approach and consider you know that we can um, find a wise way of relating to past harms and hurts and grudges and resentments and, and uh, let them go and actually let the past become the past. And, and our, our first step in approaching the subject is to acknowledge that suffering does exist. Pain, struggle, sorrow. They exist in the world at times for everybody in ways, large ways, small ways. And and it's not some kind of mistake or our fault or something that went wrong. And of course there's there's joy and, and beauty and happiness. and, and in, These are the worldly conditions and that's what it is to to take birth and live on this plane, in this realm. And part of acknowledging this is to acknowledge that sometimes we cause the suffering, sometimes other people cause it, sometimes both, and sometimes it just happens. And it's not fair. And it's not about fairness. And sometimes our memories and, and how this, I think this, the memories of past hurts, things that may have happened to us, get stored in a way where there's a lot, of, a lot of alarms and there's a lot of, um, they get triggered easily because they're, they're tied into our, our well-being and our, our self-preservations in a way. And, and they're stored in a way that, um, in a different way than other things. People who study this more than I do probably can speak to this more directly. But in very extreme cases we have post-traumatic stress um, Reactions where, where a, a certain sound will trigger this um, incredibly traumatic response, um, where the very survival <coughs> seems to be at stake, even though it's just it's an unrelated noise or something like that. And this, this, um, this can lead to ways that this is stored in the system, and, and it doesn't, unless we find a way of releasing it carefully and skillfully, it can leave us caught in these cycles. Um, where there's there's no release and there's no freedom. But we can, uh, forgiveness one way, not the only one, where we can start to um, (coughs) find a way of of, um, letting these things go and letting the past become the past. And timing is critical when we're addressing this. Sometimes you think, you know, especially maybe in this, if we think of ourselves as a as uh, in this tradition, maybe we think of ourselves as a Buddhist and we think I should forgive and and it may not be the right time, and maybe it's not we're too close to the, to what's gone on there and and it's what we really need to do is make sure we're safe It's not timing is critical. you know maybe all we have to really do is take care of ourselves because it's not easy. Sometimes it's really not easy. We have to really be in a place of of strength and stability, at least to some extent, before we can do it. Even uh, open to the possibility when there's really been really bad hurts and harms. One of of our colleagues, Winnie Nazarko, I was on retreat at the Forest Refuge next door, and she was giving a talk on the subject of uh, forgiveness. And she said, you know, you have to start really gradually. How did she put it? She said... "Um, you know, sometimes we begin the process by entertaining the possibility that you might at some point maybe consider the possibility of maybe forgiving. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even get all the all the <laughs> things she put in. It was like, you know, a huge string of of um, possible maybes in there. <laughs> There's this story that I was thinking about when I was putting together the notes for this, um, this talk. That, well, there's this incredible story I heard that sets a very high bar for forgiveness, but I find it very inspiring. I want to share, share it with, with you, and I know some of you have heard about it. It's a story that uh, happened in this country, in the city of Minneapolis, uh, and start, had the start of it was in 1993, so some time ago. And this was a story of uh, a woman named Mary Johnson, and her son, Laramian, was um, killed in a, in a gang-related situation. He was, he was uh, shot and killed. And there was an investigation into the, the incident, and there was a 16-year-old boy named O'Shea Israel, and he confessed to this killing. And he, uh, there was this long, drawn-out process, two years of hearings and appeals, and uh, finally... He was by the time they were going on, he was eighteen, so he was he was tried as an adult he was convicted of second degree murder and he was sentenced to twenty five years in prison at the age of eighteen and uh Mary Johnson, whose son was killed, she said, "I wanted him locked up and caged because I felt he was an animal, and that's what he deserved but she was a very um um spiritual woman she was she um didn't want that eating in away at her. And she, uh, with, with in her church and through prayer and with the support of others, uh, for 10 years, she worked on, on trying to come to some understanding and and forgiveness. 10 years. And then she felt that things had begun to, to change and for her. And she decided in 2005, so he was sentenced in 1995, 2005, 10 years later, she she decided. She felt she things had transformed. She said, "I want to find out if it was real," and so she um, she said, "I have to make sure that I've truly uh, forgiven him, that I don't have all that hatred inside." And so she she decided to visit him, and she made repeated requests over most of a year, and he wouldn't see her. And finally, he he said, "Okay," he agreed to meet with her. And meanwhile, he'd been doing his own in prison already for 10 years. He'd been doing his own work in terms of trying to un- come to understanding with his actions. And, um, and so they met. And, and Mary said, we had a conversation and he admitted what he had done. And I said, look, I told you in court that I forgave you way back then. But today I can actually say from the bottom of my heart that I do forgive you. And uh, O'Shea Israel uh, this young man, he said, it was very powerful and moving meeting. And I felt compelled to ask her, can I give you a hug? May I give you a hug? To show that the genuineness of my, um, of how, you know, the change in my own heart. And she said, I remember falling, and he had to hold me up. He had to hold me up until I felt this thing leave me. And I instantly knew that all that hatred and bitterness and animosity All that junk I had inside me for the past 12 years, I knew it was over with. It was done. It was gone. And they started to meet after that. And they developed a a relationship like mother and son. And uh, O'Shea was released from prison in 2012. So he may, I don't know, we have to add that up. That's 20 years, isn't it? Or most of. And she, uh, she been visiting him for years at that point. She introduced him to the landlord in the building where she was living, apartment building, and they became neighbors. He moved in there. And she said, I treat you as I would treat my own son. My natural son is no longer here. I didn't see him graduate. But now you're going to go to college, and maybe I'll have the opportunity to see you graduate. And I didn't see him getting married, but maybe one day I'll experience that with you. And then she said, unforgiveness is like cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not about that other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son. But the forgiveness is for me. It's a powerful story. It's very moving for me telling it and reading these quotations and... And there's something really important in the last thing she said. That um, That's what we're doing, is we're taking care of ourselves when we forgive. It's an internal process, and we're taking care of our own well-being with that. Because when we hold on to those kinds of resentments and grudges, we're letting the past dictate who we are in the present. We're, we're losing our personal power when we do that, and we forget that ultimately... Potentially, that it's really up to us. And how we feel doesn't have to depend on these circumstances and things that have happened. And, you know, she said something really powerful here because this forgiveness, she said, this is for me, this doesn't diminish what he, what he did. You know, it doesn't, re, it doesn't free another person from the responsibility, you could say, the weight of, of their actions. They have to do their own work. And and this young man uh, at that time, O'Shea Israel, he said, I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. This is after he's out of jail. He's her neighbor and and like a son. He said, I'm learning to forgive myself. I'm still growing toward being able to forgive myself. So that idea of, of forgiving oneself, sometimes that's what we have to do. That might be the hardest thing. Points to something important that came up in one of the groups today of, of the difference between guilt and what we might call a kind of wise remorse. You know, guilt is, is just, it doesn't go anywhere. It's just a way to, to beat ourselves up. It keeps us stuck in a place of no good, bad, wrong, whatever. Wise remorse, is is was expressed by him where he's. You know, trying to find a way to bring understanding and compassion, to see the conditions that led to actions, to take responsibility, to make amends, in, if possible, in whatever way. But it gives us the possibility of moving on, of releasing the burden of hauling this around in an, in an unskillful way that just keeps us bound to suffering. And I think this story also points to something that's very critical. Forgiveness does not ever mean that we condone harmful or unskillful actions. You know, some some actions are not and never will be forgivable. You have to make a clear distinction between forgiving a being and forgiving what they did. Some actions, they're just not ever okay we can't forgive the actions but we might be able to start forgiving a confused suffering being through the doorway of compassion we might be able to see it was the conditions there so it doesn't mean denial or repression or forgetting what happened in the past past and it may not mean mending a broken relationship you know it may not mean uh, something like what happened in this story—that was special conditions, and that allowed that to happen. And I, I was thinking of my, uh, you know, the ex- example I used from my meta retreat with this, this um, place where I'd felt I'd felt harmed and judged and, and really badly treated, and you know, I, I came to a place of really release of the the um, the resentment and anger about that. But it was clear to me that I wasn't going to be having anything to do with this being. <laughs> you know that was it doesn't mean we don't draw those boundaries say no i, I can't go there that's that's not required mm-hmm. so it's not always about mending those relationships sometimes maybe sometimes not and and really it's interesting you know when she said uh, mary johnson in that story said this forgiveness is for me you know sometimes we'll hold on to these things because we think we're punishing the other person I'll show you, I won't forgive you. And they're just fine, maybe. Well, look, where is the suffering? That was really important for me in this case. I was saying, oh, I'm the one one who's suffering here by holding on to this in this way. This other person probably doesn't even remember me. Or certainly, you know, no sense (laughs) that they care at all. You know, it's for for me. It's for us. I think we have to be careful when we ask for forgiveness that we're not putting the weight of responsibility on someone else when we ask them for for that. Sometimes that's not something we can really ask of of somebody. Or at least we can't expect that they're going to say, yes, I forgive you you know it's not doesn't somehow take away our responsibility for having uh, harmed if it's if it's a situation where we're asking for forgiveness you know we what we need to do is is maybe make amends offer an apology take responsibility in a real in a way that seems real and and show that and then perhaps we can also say you know i'd like to consider the possibility of forgiving but we have to be careful that we don't put some burden on another person, that they may not, uh, may not be fair. It's really important, I think, for me, that compassion is the doorway here. And, and if we bear in mind um, this understanding that the Buddha pointed to very clearly in one of the first verses from the, the teaching called the Dhammapada, he said, mind is the forerunner of all things all things are mind made. All actions have their genesis in the mind, in the heart. And so if we look and, and understand because we can in this when we sit in meditation we'll see we'll see we'll, you know if if suffering and confusion are if that's what's in charge of the mind, if that's what's there, then the actions that follow from that often aren't going to go well. You know, if the mind is in the grip of desire and confusion, the actions that follow on, it, this is just nature. It's not personal. Like, you know, it's not that we did it, it's greed and confusion did it. Hatred and, and ignorance did it. And yes, we're responsible, but, but there's a way that we can hold that where we can see um, that that's what was going on there. And for some people, in the minds and hearts of some people, the amount of pain and confusion and suffering is beyond anything we can conceive of. And underneath that, there's a suffering being who wants to be happy And so compassion, for me, is essential because we can touch into the shared humanity there, and we may be able to um, find enough space to reflect and and connect with the fact that there's this inner turmoil and confusion that has covered over their their essential goodness, their conditioning. And again, it doesn't mean that we condone harmful actions, but we can start to bring some understanding and see that's what's there. We make this distinction between someone's, the, the, that basic goodness, and, and harmful actions that they may have done out of ignorance and pain. And this is a quotation from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. We must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. One who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us, and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. And this is a, another quotation that where I found that it was attributed to um, the actress uh, Lily Tomlin. It said, forgiveness means giving up all hope of a better past. And it's, kind of, it's kind of amusing, but it's, there's some real nugget of truth in that. You know, we can't get a better past. But what we can do is get a better relationship to our past. So we can give up all hope of a better past, and at the same time we can release the burden of hauling it around with us like a corpse. Mm-hmm. And so it's important if we, in developing patience and, and especially in uh you know, considering the possibility of a relationship with this, this idea of forgiveness, that, um, you know, it's a process, and it doesn't come from an act of will. And just because we've decided it's a good thing doesn't mean it's going to happen. You know, it might take a while. And the story with Mary Johnson, the story I shared with you, she worked on this for ten years. and felt like, okay, now I'll check and see. Maybe it feels like it's real. Let me actually see if it's real. And and so in this case and in in all of our practice, to remind ourselves that we're planting these seeds and this intention to possibly look at forgiveness as this critical first step. And and the power of an intention in, in this image of a seed, I think is so great for that. It's huge. You know, a seed... One seed can bring forth a huge tree with thousands and thousands of fruits and more seeds there. And you know, one seed planted falls in a crack in a rock, a huge rock. And the tree that sprouts from that can crack that rock into two pieces or many pieces. So the power of, of the intention, these intentions that we bring to to the mind, this intention to cultivate wisdom and kindness, to cultivate compassion. It's the potential power of that is huge in our lives. Don't underestimate that and and honor that. And plant those seeds carefully. That's what we can do. Plant them carefully and bow with respect to uh, the fact that you do it at all. That's what matters we can sit quietly for a few minutes now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.